Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. All right, everyone, if you could get to your seats. I'm going to read from Genesis 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Thank you. Thanks, Biggie. Funny spot to maybe end the passage, but we'll go from there. Uh, there is, there's so much that is often built into our experience and perhaps previous understanding of the book of Genesis. Uh, those three words that open up the story in the beginning are they're the words which open up the Bible and they they do more than simply begin the narrative of, of the story. They're meant to initiate this narrative of God's heart and his pursuit of us and his desire to, to know who we are and for us to know who he is. Within the first three chapters of Genesis lies more than simply uh, a Sunday school story involving an apple, a snake, uh, a woman, and a tree. But within those words that we see throughout Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 3, I hope that we can discover God's invitation and intention for creation as well as his purpose for humanity. Uh, growing up, I remember that there was almost this pre-built assumption of contention between science and faith. That science somehow discredits faith while faith doesn't need science. And then, then I went off to university, got a degree in biology, and learned intricacies of both the world that we live in as well as you and I 
And there was questions that arise and, and parts of the story that, that feel at conflict with the things I'm learning when it comes to science. The idea of intelligent design uh, in the world that we live in doesn't, didn't feel like it was too difficult to correlate with the detailed scientific realities of life. But the story of creation, Genesis 1 through 3, felt a little bit more difficult to reconcile. Uh, perhaps you, like myself, read the story and found difficulties between the sequence of things and explanations of it. Uh, perhaps you grew up in a, in a church environment or in previous experiences that exposed you to only a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2. But as I wrestled over time, what I did find is I found my questions were not isolated. Uh, I was not the only one asking these questions. And these questions, they didn't need to destroy my faith. In fact, they could build it up. They could draw my heart to the person of Jesus in a way that I never thought possible. In fact, this value that we hold as a church of intellectual honesty, one in which we look at the authorship, the context, the people, and the place in which the book is written, it all feeds into this way in which we actually approach this creation story. As a church, we believe that the scriptures are divinely inspired. And in the same breath, it sits as an incredibly complicated and nuanced library of text spanning cultures and time and people groups. All this to say, perhaps in our reading last week, and maybe you spent some time and you read Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 in the, in the days prior. All this to say that the early Chapters of Genesis present two accounts of cosmic and human origin, and it does so in the language and in the tradition of the ancient Hebrews. We believe that these texts shouldn't be removed from their ancient context and read as if they're meant to process modern day 21st century scientific terms. They speak in terms of the ancient Near Eastern perception of the world, and they should be interpreted within that setting. When we discern the meaning of the text within their ancient context, we will find that Genesis is in fact making a powerful claim about who God is, who we are, and what kind of world we live in. Now, this might automatically make you feel uncomfortable. You've held a long-standing idea, and maybe it is something that you hold as a hard truth for yourself. Bear with me. Uh, stick with me. We're going we're gonna to talk about something this morning that I believe is for everyone. Genesis 1 and 2 is fundamental to understanding the entire trajectory of the biblical narrative. So it's so fundamental that we need to truly understand who and what Jesus is with an understanding of what happens here in Genesis. This is, this is how important it is that we talk about it this morning. When we look at the ancient Near East and we look at the Genesis narrative... The, the mental image of a sphere up in the sky was not one that would have been found within an, an ancient Near East perspective. When the language of heavens and earth is used, it's very simply the ground under their feet and the sky above their heads. Genesis is an ancient text written by and for an ancient people to address their concerns. 
the Old Testament as we know it today. To put a little bit of context around even when the book of Genesis is compiled and provided to the, to the Jewish people, the Torah itself. Uh, the end of the exile, the Babylonian exile, is when we see this start to take place. The people of Israel, God's chosen people, were removed from their homeland. And they were grappling with the idea of their chosenness. And they'd experience immense heartache and persecution and now exile. And these events had begun to foster doubt within them that God was actually real and for them. They began to face questions of whether or not they were supposed to assimilate, assimilate into Babylonian culture and religion. And this is all taking place as this Genesis narrative is being compiled and put together in the Torah for them to, to see the story of creation, the story of Yahweh, the story of the God of Israel. And once we understand these ideas, I think we can appreciate that the focus of the text is actually a theological one. To study God. To know who God is. Uh, to put it another way. The ancient Israelites were trying to grapple with the origins of... The, weren't trying to grapple with the origins of the universe and humanity. They were trying to grapple with the simple of idea of why is their God the one that they should worship. Last week, Ryan discussed Genesis 1 and he culminated his talk around this idea of the image of God. That the humanity that is formed in Genesis 1 is to bear the image of God. And this is an immensely powerful statement. The arrival of, of Jesus, the arrival of Christianity into the culture that we find in this world was completely shaken to the core when it saw this idea of the Imagio Dei and unconditional love. Two ideas that were completely oppositional against what culture normally thought of at the time and in many ways actually acts out in the here and now. And this, this first chapter presents this idea that all of humanity bears the image of God. And it does so through a certain approach. The first chapter is one that presents the transcendence of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, the expansiveness of who God is, and it's poured into creation, and it's poured into humanity, which would bear his image. The creation of humanity in the image of God. And the image of God is it's really a remarkable statement. I want to emphasize this again as we enter into chapter 2. Because the word for image is the same word used to describe idols for the rest of the Old Testament. We are God's idols. Now, that sounds really weird. That sounds like a really odd statement or way to say it. But think about this with me. What is the function of, of, of an idol? It's a statue. People would worship an idol. And the statue was a visible representation of an invisible divine being. Within the surrounding ancient Near East religions, whether it was Marduk in the Babylonian tradition or whether it was Baal in the Canaanite tradition, there was statues which represented their gods. And even those statues were specific often to regions that they were in. There was a God of the north and there was a God of the south. And that wherever those statues were was the territory in which they held dominion. So when this text comes to the forefront, 
and you hear the God of Israel, you hear Elohim declare that, he, that all of humanity is to bear his image, to be idols, to carry his image, and to not just keep it in one place, but to be fruitful and to multiply to the ends of the earth. This is a dramatic statement that this God is different than any other. That this is the God who has authority over all things in all places at all time. And then he does so through a confirmation in the identity of his people. We, we all have, have driver's licenses. Well, not all of us. If you have a driver's license, perhaps you've noticed that you've got your picture on there. Maybe it's a good picture. Maybe it's a bad picture. Maybe it's one that you kept and keep on asking them to reuse over and over again because it was that good the first time around. But you feel like it's a great representation of you. And when you show the card to someone, is that card you? No. But it is a representation of you. And, and, and it speaks to, to who you are. It gives some, some details about, about your maybe physical characteristics, where you're from, your date of birth. When we carry the image of God within us, there's an authority, there's an identity that goes with us, before us in everything that we do. In Egypt, the pharaohs were the only ones who were considered to bear the image of God. And so within that culture, to bear the image of God was kind of isolated to someone of royalty and someone of male gender. The highest standing in social hierarchy would be described as someone bearing God's image. And yet, we see within Genesis that it is all people that are to bear the image of God. Again, this is directly in opposition to the religions in the surrounding area, saying that this God is different than any other. And by, by knowing that, you and I are different because of how we are made. The function of an idol is to give a visible representation of the divine. And the language of Genesis 1 and 2 is to say, that the intention of humanity is to be the representation of God in the world. We are to be the visible manifestation of God on earth. And this communicates beyond value, beyond experience, beyond personal belief. Humanity carries that image. This is God's intention to create that which would bear his image. So with that in mind, we're going to look at some differences between Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to look at the dust which Adam is formed from, the fundamental plot conflict in Genesis, and the purpose given by God to humanity, which I think holds weight for us today. What does the creation story reveal about the purpose of humanity? Intent is indicated in Genesis 1. An intention allows for purpose to exist. God is intentional in his creation. And, and the authors are intentional as well in how they present who God is. There's a shift that takes place from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. I don't know if you've read it recently, but they are not the same things. But yet there is the story of creation that is presented in both. The tone of the text actually changes. Chapter 1 sees the creator speak the world into existence. While chapter 
chapter 2 sees the creator getting his hands into the dirt and actually forming, f- forming creation from the dirt of the ground. The sequence of the story, would, it varies between the two. In Genesis 1, humans are made on the sixth day. And in Genesis 2 verse 4, it says there were no shrubs and no plants. And none of those things come to be until humans arrive on the scene. There is land and there is potential for growth. But who's going to produce the food? Well, humans are going to do that. And they're brought into the story to cultivate order and flourishing in the world. And then streams rise up and there's raw materials that are present. But humanity comes onto the scene to be a part of participating in the creation that God is having take place. Genesis 1 is a statement on God's cosmic temple and his image bearers. It's about the transcendence of God. Genesis 2 speaks to the personal nature of God. But it's not just the, the tone that shifts. Because I think that can, be, that can be interpretive as a subjective approach to reading the scripture. There's a shift in the actual language between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In our English translations, we see the word God over and over and over again. And, and this is true to a degree. But if you were to read the the Hebrew translation, what you would see is that Genesis 1 uses the term Elohim over and over and over again. While Genesis 2, though it is speaking of God, uses the term Yahweh when speaking of God over and over and over again. There's a difference here. And they're not just, just synonyms. Yahweh is the personal name of God, while Elohim is describing who God is. Think of it this way. My, my name is Jason, uh, my, and I am a pastor. What I am and what I do, uh, I'm a pastor. But my personal name, to know me, to be in relationship with me, to, to know me as Jason. And now there are many different descriptions of who God is in the text, but the most common one is Elohim. And that's, our most, that's the most similar to our perhaps understanding of the word God. But Yahweh is used in chapter 2. And Yahweh is meant to communicate the personal nature in which God interacts with his creation. And it's used over and over again. And what I want you to see in the makeup of Genesis 1 and 2 is that God, what God wants to do is rule the world and share it. He, he, he forms the world and in his personal desire, he intimately wants to share it with you and I, that which bears his image. It is not bearing image for vanity's sake or just for the purpose of saying it's done. It's with the purpose of sharing in the creation to rule the world alongside a good God. God is, is all-powerful and expansive. We see that in chapter 1. He just breathes and then life comes into being. Creation comes into being. But God, is, he's also intimate and he's in the dirt and he's with creation, forming it with his hands to bring life into broken and dead spaces. He sees potential and he pulls life out of it. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 is the story about the creator. 
the one who invades desolate spaces, formless chaos, the one who brings life and light, the one who enters into the brokenness and the nothingness of dirt so that life can break forth in it. This is about God's pursuit of relationship by all that he is. Genesis 1 and 2 presents the world as it should be, as you and I should be, as God intended it to be. And the intimacy of Yahweh that we see in Genesis 2 is an invitation that he forms out of the dust his creation. And then he invites that creation to to name and, and to rule to be, to be curators, as we're calling our series. Wrapped into God's intention is humanity's purpose. And there's this clear directive. It's a, it's a, it's a given vocation to rule. And r- the word rule feels odd, with it, especially within our modern context, because we live in a democratic society, so we don't function in this hierarchical nature as much so as perhaps it was when the text itself was written. But there are resources given. There are animals which are present and a directive to to name. And then there's an opportunity to rule that is present. And to curate them in such a way. And this is important when we understand what it means to rule as God rules. To curate them in such a way that it produces life. I think history has shown that you can rule in very different ways. You can rule people in a way that subjugates them to your authority for your own selfish obsessions and purposes. Or you can be a servant-hearted king that can be for the people, for the nation, for the longevity of a people group well beyond the space in which you occupy. The manner in which we are invited to rule is a decision that's placed before humanity. And in Genesis 2, it says that Yahweh Elohim, the personal name of God, the expansive nature of God, enters into the dirt and it forms the Adam, Adam, meaning humanity. And from the dust of the ground, God breathes into the nostrils breath of life and Adam becomes a a living being. Now, focusing on humanity, what is is the nature of of Adam in this scenario? He he comes from dust. Uh, One of my favorite sermons that I preach often at like youth camps is I I quote this scripture and I say, man, it is funny to look at all the things that God makes. The mountains that are majestic, the rivers and the oceans which are boundless and they're vast and and even the stories of heaven of, of pearl gates and gold streets and what does humanity get? Humanity gets a bunch of dirt, gets a bunch of dust. But what does the dust speak of when it comes to humanity? Is it meant to actually push us down and say that, ah, you're actually of little value? I think it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. But when the word dust shows up in the biblical text beyond the Genesis narrative, what we do find is that it says over and over again that it is a reference to the mortality of humanity. 
It's not speaking to the composition. We, we have all, unfortunately, most likely experienced death to some degree. Maybe it's a grandparent. And when you go and there's the burial that takes place, that, that body decomposes. This is not meant to be a scientific prerogative that somehow within your mother's womb there is a speck of dust that comes into being and bursts into uh, a human in, in, in that sense. No, that, that this is not what it's trying to communicate. The word dust communicates the mortality of humanity. John Walton, he says this. He says, being formed from dust is a statement about essence and identity, not our substance. In this, Adam is an archetype. Formed from dust is not a statement of material origins for any of us. And there's no reason to think of it that way. For Adam, as for all of us, that we are formed from dust makes a statement about our identity as mortals. But I want you to think about what's taking place within this text. That there's this dust and this dirt, and then we see that God's divine breath is breathed into it. I know I find for myself, and I have had this conversation with so many, that we are constantly faced with this like existential crisis. Why am I here on this earth? And in many ways, that, that question that we feel is almost the, the clashing of, of dirt and divine breath. That we feel tied to the ground in the place that we are. We are, we are mortals on the earth, living on the earth. And yet we feel like there's greater purpose, there's, there's greater meaning, that we're connected to something beyond that which we can even see. Even those who might de deny a spiritual reality have sensed moments where they thought to themselves, maybe, perhaps there is a God. Maybe there's something out there beyond that I, I can understand. This, this clashing of, of dirt and divine breath is played out in Genesis 2 by an intimate God who comes into the midst of his creation so that life can be burst forth and purpose can be found. So the encouragement perhaps in this moment is that you're not just dirt, but you are the divine breath of God representing him in this world. And what a gift, what a privilege, what an opportunity that is. His intention is that you would bear his image. But what do we actually do with that intention? What is our purpose out of that? We are dirt and divine breath. And then the story continues and it presents us with this idea of, uh, well, Adam, he was, was not doing so well. And he was needing a companion. And it's interesting, in, in chapter 1, it doesn't go through the dialogue of explaining how a woman came into being. It just simply says that humanity was formed them. The woman is present in chapter 1 just as it is in chapter 2. And there's often a lot of conflict, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but there's, there's some, some conflict around the idea of this word helper. Uh, that it, it can feel, especially within our modern-day context, like it's demeaning or it's somehow derogatory. It's not what's happening within the text. When it is referenced within the text, it is actually used over and over again in the Bible as a reference to God coming alongside humanity and doing the impossible or making it possible where there was not things getting done. <laughs> 
So it's, this, it's the language actually of God coming alongside, speaking of the woman coming alongside. And, and even within the translation itself, when it talks about a rib being taken out, it's probably not the truest translation. Uh, it's more accurately translated the word side. Uh, we've just kind of gotten really used to this idea of rib. To, to, to be clear, if you've ever wondered, we all have the same number of ribs. There's not one that's missing. Uh, but this idea of side happening. And the side being removed so that you can come alongside what's taking place. But the purpose is not to say that one came out of the other. The purpose of this text, this moment in Genesis 2, is to communicate that one needs the other. That the community of love at the center of the universe, God, Father, Son, and Spirit knows that to live life to the fullest is not to live it in isolation and in loneliness. That actually purpose and intention that we discover in our creation is not to simply be one person that's doing all the work and getting all the credit, but to discover the fullness of life by doing it in communion, community and in relationship. That this is to communicate that you and I have great purpose to bear the image of God, but we do not bear it alone. That the person on your right and your left also bears that image and you uphold that image in how you speak and treat them in all that they do. Regardless of action, regardless of decision, regardless of opinion, regardless of whether they hold the same beliefs as you, they bear the image of God. And this is our purpose that we carry. That the manner in which God portrays and provides the image of himself into his people is the manner in which we are meant to treat one another. To live together. We are not meant to live alone. We say it often and it almost feels cliche that life is not meant to be done alone or life is, is better together. But very much at the very beginning, God institutes that you need one another. That we need each other. That you need the image bearer who sits beside you. Now, uh, worship team, you can join me at the front. Now, I, I, I read these stories. And I want to I clarify. Who do I believe is responsible for the origins of humanity? I believe that God is. And who are humans? They are glorious, image-bearing creatures with this amazing vocation and calling. And they're navigating this existential crisis of, why am I here? I feel part of this world, but I also feel drawn towards purpose. But what's this whole story about? It's not about evolution. It's not about creationism. And it's not about answering modern questions about physical origins of the universe. It's not even here to tell us how old the earth is. The story of Genesis is about a God who wants to share with humans his creation and, and provide an invitation to rule this world in love, in power, and in the wisdom of the creator. But then what happens? Divine breath is poured in. A helper comes alongside 
Yahweh is not absent. He's not expansive and separate and transcendent. He's in the midst. He's in the dirt with them. You would think there are all the parameters and tangible variables required for a successful creation. But I think we know that that wasn't the case. The curators that were invited to participate in creation proved to be poor management. Didn't carry the love, the wisdom, or the, or the hope of the creator in the things that they did. And this is why when we see Jesus, it matters deeply. Because the story of Jesus is about saving and restoring humans so that the story of Genesis can be fulfilled. Within the first chapter of Genesis and played out in the second chapter is this idea called the, great, the creation commission. To be fruitful and to multiply, to expand to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he gives the great commission to make disciples of all nations. And for some, they have felt this contradiction as if the two are in opposition to each other. That they're seen as rivals. But what is Jesus calling people to when he's calling us to discipleship? He's calling us to flourishing. He's calling us to health. He's calling us to a new way of living as humans together. And Jesus is calling us to obey and to, to live in a new way, to follow the Great Commission in many ways is to live out the, crea the, the Creation Commission. This way of Jesus is a new way to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth by a different story, by a different ethic and a different value system. That my relationships and my neighbors and my workplaces, it's all unified as the context in which I exist as a human. And the question is which story am I going to live by? What kind of human am I actually called to be? Because this creation story is meant to give a new sacred dignity to every part of my life. God appoints a second self, you and I, to speak for him. An image of the divine, humanity coming into being. And we see that humans, they make this, this grand mistake. That we feel this image of God and this, this spiritual come upon us. And we don't want to simply be images of God, but, but to be God. And it's this poison to our purpose. That we don't want to curate God's good world, but we want to rule as we see fit. And this in of itself sits as the fundamental plot conflict in the book of Genesis throughout the Bible and in our own world. Curators were created to care for creation, but like I said, they proved to be bad management. But if your favorite restaurant in Vancouver has a change of management and food goes sideways, can't handle the servers anymore. Things have gone the complete opposite direction of what made it so good. Do we just go to the place and burn it down? <laughs> I would hope not. We would hope that new management would come in. We'd hope that 
they would see the error of their ways and there would be a newness that would come back to the place. And there's a brokenness that happens with humanity. And God doesn't let it be as it was. Jesus comes into the picture and he sees that the management's not so good. And what does he preach about over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount? He preaches about the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And he speaks to the curators of the garden, to you and I. And he says that you've been ruling the world through self-obsessed definitions of good and evil, resulting in a world that looks like ours today. And then he enters into the picture to be the kind of ruler that we are made to be but have failed to be. And he comes to show us what true ruling looks like. And he says, if you want to rule and be first, where do you go? You go to the bottom. You become a servant. You go last. And he doesn't just teach this. He lives this out. Up upon that cross of Roman execution, he gives himself over to death, absorbing the consequences of the collective chaos of humanity. Enters death itself, defeats death, rises to new life, invites his curators to experience that death and life alongside him, and then participate in ruling a kingdom that has no end. One that is presented in creation as perfect that has lost its way. And it is by Jesus' rule that we come to make this place what it is destined to be. He rules it through self-sacrifice. He rules it in a way that's beyond what we do. So our purpose is to be curators. But what does that mean? Our purpose is to care for his creation, to care for each other, to represent his image, to pursuing unconditional love, and to share in it together, to be unified. This is the creation story. To tell us who God is and who we are called to be. So this morning, I don't know what business you need to do with God as we close in worship. I don't know maybe how you've perhaps ruled your life of late. Maybe you can see that it has become self-obsessed with your own definitions of right and wrong and there is no desire to look outside. Perhaps you need to hear that still small voice inviting you to a new story, a new way of living, a new path. Let's pray. Creator God, we offer ourselves as your children to you this morning. Thank you that you are not just vast and expansive, but you are intimate and in the dirt. Thank you that you breathe life into that which we don't see any possibility. Thank you that you invite us to not just do life alone, but to do it alongside one another. Not in a hierarchical manner, but alongside arm's length, together, holy and perfect before our God through the person of Jesus. I thank you 
that you created us with an intention to bear your image and the purpose to reflect that image into this world. Where our stories have begun to lack it, bring it to our minds. The ways in which we perhaps have lost that purpose. our paths become busy or distracted. I pray, Father, that you'd bring to the forefront of our minds the ways in which that purpose of being the curators of creation to care for those around us, to hear the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, inviting us into relational healing in space after space. There's a space to see that how, see how that is purpose from the beginning being born in the way of Jesus. So we invite you into our hearts this morning to meet us where we're at. If it's joy that we need, may we find it. If it's peace that we need, may it be so. Conviction or perhaps a correction. Be gentle with our hearts. But in all things, may we be drawn towards you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.